This is Getting to Know Your Bible, a program dedicated to the proclaiming of the good news of Jesus Christ. Here's Billy Lambert. It is a pleasure to be with you today on Getting to Know Your Bible. We do appreciate those of you that are watching at this time, and we especially appreciate those who may be watching right now for the very first time. We have those who watch every time we come on the air. We thank you so much for your interest in getting to know your Bible. Now today on our telecast, we're going to be discussing a question that I believe ought to be of interest to every single one of us. What is your conception of God? What is your conception of God? When we talk about God, what comes to your mind? We want to discuss that today. On our telecast, we continue to offer the free Bible Correspondence Course. We do this in order that you might become better acquainted with the Word of God, have a deeper knowledge of the Bible, and we have thousands of people all over the world that are studying the Bible using this Bible Correspondence Course. I recently got a letter from someone in Kuwait who's studying the Bible Correspondence Course. We have literally people all over the world uh, that are studying this Bible course. We want you to be a part of it as well. We want you to have the Bible course so you can study it in the privacy of your home. You say, well, Brother Lambert, what does it cost? It costs absolutely nothing. We send it to you free of charge. And I know that might sound strange to those who are accustomed to paying for everything you see on television, but we're not charging you for this. We want you to have it so that you can get better acquainted with the Bible. And in order that you might know more about the course, that you might know how to receive it, let's pause for just a moment. To help you in your study of the Bible, we want to send you this Bible Correspondence Course. This course is non-denominational. It's based on the Bible. It's conducted by mail, and it's free. To receive this course, write to Getting to Know Your Bible, Post Office Box 314, Somerdale, Alabama, 36580, or call toll-free 1-877-711-5214. I'm reading now from Isaiah, the 45th chapter, verses 5 through 7. I am the Lord, and there is none other. There is no God besides me. I will gird you, though you have not known me, that you may know from the rising of the sun to its setting that there is none beside me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. What is your conception of God? Do you really know God? It is important that a person know God. In 2 Peter 3 verse 18, we're told that we're to grow in the grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. We're to grow in our knowledge of God. We're to grow in our knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. In John, the 17th chapter, Jesus is praying to his Father in heaven, and he says, 
He, he prays that, we, that people might know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom he has sent. We are to know God. And a person who does not go, know God imperils his or her eternal destiny. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, beginning in verse 7, the Bible reads like this, And to you who are troubled, rest with us. When the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God. So it is important that we know God. But how do we come to know him? Well, someone says, can't you look at nature and know God? It is true that the Bible says in Psalms 19 and verse 1, the heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament showeth his handiwork. It is by looking around at nature that we can see that there must be, there must be someone who created all things. And that person who created all things, of course, is God. But we are indebted to another source to tell us who that creator is. I want to call your attention to a passage from the first chapter of Romans, beginning in verse 19. Because that what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has showed it to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they're without excuse. There's no excuse for a person not believing in a, in a creator because the heavens declare his glory. Now let's continue to read. Verse 21, because all they, they knew, although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts and their foolish hearts were darkened professing to be wise, they became fools. So people ought to be able to know it. there is a God by observing nature, but the Bible, it is the Bible that furnishes a true conception of God. And a number of years ago, a man by the name of J.B. Phillips wrote a book entitled, Your God is Too Small. Your God is Too Small. What? What conception do some people have of God? Some people think God is nothing more than, than a resident policeman. Uh, some people think God is somewhat like a Santa Claus. And some people think God is just a, a doting old grandfather. And if that's your conception, you, then your God is indeed too small. Ch children have a limited view of God. I read some prayers that children had prayed about God to God, and listen to this one. Dear God, are you real? Some did not believe it. If you are, you better do something quick. Signed, Harry and Ann. And here was another prayer that, that a child prayed. Dear God, we're going on a vacation for two weeks so, so we won't be in church. I hope that you'll be there when we get back. By the way, when do you take your vacation? Here's another. Dear God, 
Are boys better than girls? I, I know you are one, but try to be fair. And then another, dear God, I, I wrote you before. Do you remember? I, I did what I promised, but you did not send me a horse yet. Signed, Lewis. Oh, the faith that children have in God. You remember Paul said, when I was a child, I spake as a child, I thought as a child, I understood as a child. Jesus said, except you become as little children, ye shall not enter into the kingdom of heaven, Matthew 18, 3. Oh, to be childlike in our faith toward God, because children have a total trust in Him. But some people have a cruel view of God. Some say that we are predestined to heaven or hell before we were ever born. That's unconditional election. And to me, that would make God a very cruel God if he predestined people to heaven or hell before they were ever born. When the Lord extended an invitation to people, he extended that not just to a select group of people, but rather Jesus extended that invitation to all. In Matthew 11 and 28, Jesus said, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden. So you see, that invitation is for all people, not just a select group of people. Just imagine a father going out and finding a doll that his daughter had been wanting for a long, long time. She, she had been just really wanting that doll badly. So he buys it. And then he takes his daughter and he ties his daughter to a tree and then he holds that doll out in front of his daughter and he says, now you come and get the doll, honey. You say, well, that, would be a cruel, that would be a cruel dad to do something like that to a child. That would be child cruelty. Well, just imagine a father that sent his son into the world to die for the sins of the world, and then God fixing it so certain ones can't be saved, but then he says, now you come, and you come to the, my son in order that you might be saved. That would be a cruel God indeed. You see, God wants all people to be saved, not just a select group of people. It's cruel to say that he predestined a certain ones to heaven and hell before they were born. The matter of fact, the Bible teaches in 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 4 that God would have all men to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. The reason all men will not be saved is all people will not come to a knowledge of the truth. You see, people are free moral agents and they are to exercise their freedom of choice. Jesus says, come. Why did he say come if we do not have the ability to come? We have the ability to come or not to come. We have the ability to obey or not to obey. We have the ability to love or not to love. Joshua chapter 24 and verse 15 suggests strongly the free moral agency of man, man's freedom of choice. When Joshua said, choose you this day whom you will serve, whether the gods which your fathers served that were on the other side of the flood 
or the God of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. So we have the ability to choose to serve the Lord or not serve the Lord. And to say that God predestined certain ones to heaven or hell before they were born is not the God of the Bible. Jesus said, come unto me. All people will not. For in fact, in John chapter 5 and verse 40, Jesus said, and you would not come unto me that you might have life. So there have always been those who would reject the Lord, but they do have the ability to accept. In Revelation chapter 22 and verse 17, we have this invitation of the Bible. The Spirit and the bride say, Come, let him that is a thirst come. Whosoever will, let him drink of the water of life freely. But then some have another conception of God. They have an atheistic view of God. That is, they claim that God does not exist. They do not believe that there is a God. They, they, they think that man, in fact, is a God unto himself. I remind, I'm reminded of what David said about those who have this conception of God in Psalms, the 14th chapter, verse 1, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. That simply means that a person would have to be morally and spiritually senseless to make such a declaration. You see, for one to say that there is no God, one would have to be all-knowing. They would have to know everything. For if there is one thing that he does not know, that one thing that he does not know may be that God is. One would have to be omnipresent, that is, have to be everywhere at the same time to say God is not real. And because, you see, if there is one place this person has not been, that one place they have not been may be where God is. In other words, for a person to say there is no God, they would have to have all of the attributes of deity. They would have to be omniscient, all-knowing. They would have to be omnipresent, ever-present, at the, at the, everywhere at the same time. And so a person would have to be a God unto themselves. But then there are those who have a polyistic view of God, that is, that there are many gods. It's very popular now in our world to say, you have your God, I have mine. We all believe in a God. We just don't all believe in the same God. There's just one small problem with that. This is what the Bible teaches. In Exodus, the 20th chapter, verses 1 and 2, thou shalt have no other gods before me. No other gods. Well, why not have some other God? Because as Paul wrote in Ephesians 4, verse 6, there is one God who is above all, through all, and in you all. There, in fact, there is not but one God. When Paul came into the city of Athens, he saw the people given over to idolatry. 
And, and they had all kinds of gods. It is said that it was easier to find a god in Athens than it was to find a man. They had all kinds of idols and gods that they worshipped in Athens. And Paul began to preach to them. And he talked to them about the God that they did not know anything about. The God in whom we live and the God in whom we move and the God in whom we have our very being. There's an interesting reading in the 115th Psalm. And I'd like to begin verse number 1 uh, and, and read just a few verses out of the 115th Psalm because there were, it's not new for people to have this polytheistic view of God. That is, the concept that there are many gods, that you have your God and I have my God. Now listen, beginning in verse 1. Now, now, not unto us, O Lord, not unto us, but to your name give glory, because of your mercy, because of your truth. Why should the Gentiles say, so where is their God? But our God is in heaven. He does whatever he pleases, and that's true, isn't it? Their idols are silver and gold, the work of men's hands. Now, he's making a contrast here between the God of heaven, the one God, and the gods of the Gentiles. He says, our God is in heaven, and our God can do whatever he wants to do. Their idols are silver and gold. They're the work of men's hands. And listen to it in verse number 5. They have mouths, but they do not speak. Eyes they have, but they do not see. They have ears, but they do not hear. Noses they have, but they do not smell. They have hands, but they do not handle. Feet they have, but they do not walk. Nor do they mutter through their throat. In other words, their gods aren't alive. Their gods are dead. They can't talk. They can't see. They can't hear. They can't smell. They can't handle. They can't walk. They can't do anything. But in contrast, our God is in heaven. He does whatever he pleases, but their gods cannot. And so then verse 8, he says, but those who make them are like them. So is everyone who trusts in them. Oh, rather than trusting in some idol, rather than trusting in some little small God somewhere, let's trust in the true God. It was David in Psalms 11 in verse 1 who said, In the Lord put I my trust. So some have this view of God that there are many gods, but the Bible teaches there is one God. You see, some have this monotheistic view of God that there is just one God. That's what we read from Isaiah chapter 5. There's none other like him. In Deuteronomy, the sixth chapter in verse 4, and Moses, when he was addressing the children of Israel, said, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. There's just one. There's one God, but there are three personalities. There is the Father, there is the Word, the Son. There's the Holy Spirit. That, that's what we read in the Bible in 1 John chapter 5 and in verse number 7. Listen to it. There are three that bear witness in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Spirit, and these three are one. There is one God, 
and it's referred to as being the Godhead. In him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. And Jesus Christ is a part of the Godhead. The Father is a part of the Godhead. The Holy Spirit is a part of the Godhead. There are three personalities. There is but one God. And we read about all three of those in Romans, the 15th chapter, and in verse 13. And the, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Spirit. Listen to verse number 13, Romans 15. Now may the God of hope, there's the number one, the part of the Godhead, fill you with all joy in peace and believing and abound in the hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. And there we have God mentioned in that passage and we have the Holy Spirit being mentioned in that passage. Now listen to verse number 16 that I may be a minister of Jesus Christ, there's one, ministering the gospel of God, there's two, that the offering of the Gentiles might be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit, there's three. So two of them are mentioned in verse 13. All three members of the Godhead, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, are mentioned in verse 16. You see, there are three personalities in the Godhead, there's just one God. Listen to Genesis chapter 1 and verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The word God in Genesis 1 and 1 is Elohim, or, and it is plural, suggesting that there was more than one person involved in the creation. In Genesis chapter 1 and verse 26, the Lord said, Let us make man. Not let me make man, let us make man. In Isaiah the ninth chapter and verse 6, Unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given. Who are the us? It's talking about the Godhead. In Isaiah the sixth chapter and in verse 8, the, Isaiah, the Lord asked, Who will I send and who shall go for us? And Isaiah, of course, said, Here, my Lord, send me. The question is, who's going to do it for us? Who will go for the Godhead? So some have this monotheistic view of God that, there's just, that there is one God. They're, these three are one in nature. They're all eternal. God the Father is eternal. He is from everlasting to everlasting. Psalms 91 and 2. Jesus Christ is eternal. His goings forth have been from of old, from everlasting. Micah chapter 5 and verse 2. And the Holy Spirit is eternal. The Holy Spirit in Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 14 is referred to as being the eternal spirit. So they're one in nature. They're all eternal. And they're one in purpose. In John 4, 34, the Son said... My meat is to do the will of him that sent me. And then John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. So God the Father gave his Son. And then in 2 Timothy chapter 3.16, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God 
and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. All three of members of the Godhead have one purpose in mind. That's the salvation of the human race. God designed the plan, Jesus executed the plan, and the Holy Spirit revealed the plan. You see, they are one. A man and woman become one in marriage. Matthew chapter 19, verses 5 and 6. And so they are one. They are, should be one in their purpose. They ought to be one in their love. There are so many ways that a husband and wife are one. And we are, as Christians, to be one, just like God and the Father and the Son are one. That's what Jesus, that's for which Jesus prayed in John chapter 17, verses 20 and 21. Neither pray I for these alone, but for them also which shall believe on me through their word, that they all may be one, as thou, Father, art in me and I in thee, that they may be one in us, that the world may believe that thou hast sent me. The Godhead is united. They are one. One God, three personalities, and they are one in their nature. They are one in their purpose. They are eternal, and they have in their purpose the salvation of the whole human race. Christians today are to be one as well. And so there is just one God. What is your conception of God? What is indeed your conception of God? Do you see him as a God who is far away? Do you see him as a God who does not know what's going on in your life? Do you see him as a God who does not care? Do you see him as a God who is unmerciful? We ought to see him as a God who is not very far from every one of us. We should see him as a God of love, and kindness and mercy. For indeed that is the God of the Bible. And he cared so much for you that he sent his only son into the world to die for your sins and for mine. Would you obey him today? In order that you might be saved, the Bible teaches that you must believe in Jesus Christ Unless we believe in Jesus, John 8, 24 tells us that we will die in our sins. We must believe in Jesus. We must be willing to repent of our sins according to Luke 13 and 3, uh, 2 Peter 3, 9, Acts 17, 30, Acts 2, 38, and Acts 3, 19. That simply means that we give up the sin in our lives. We, we change, have a change of thought in our minds, a change of heart. And not only repent of our sins, confess faith, and we're to be baptized into Christ. I want to thank you for watching. May God bless you. Getting to Know Your Bible has been presented by Churches of Christ. If you have a question about the church, or if you would like the location of a Church of Christ near you, or to receive the free Bible course, 
Write to Getting to Know Your Bible, Post Office Box 314, Somerdale, Alabama 36580, or call 1 877 711 5214. Join us next time for Getting to Know Your Bible.